Well, as, uh, as believers, we know that we're in a spiritual battle, and we know that because the Bible tells us that. I mean, we experience it in uh, temptations that we face, uh, temptations to sin or temptations towards fear or hate or doubt, and, uh, and, and, and we also experience it in the victories uh, when we overcome those temptations. And yet all of those things that I just mentioned are, are common to humankind. It's really God's word that reveals to us that truth that we're in a battle. And, and that word also reveals to us some of the reasons behind the battles that we face. Of course, our sinful nature uh, is part of the battle. I mean, we're prone to sin and left to ourselves. We do. We do indeed sin. But there's really more going on than just that. You see, we have an enemy, and, uh, and that enemy is someone who wants to destroy us, and he, and he tries to make use of our own sinful nature to ju- do just that. And, and that's how we experience that war, that spiritual battle that's going on on a personal level. We, we experience defeat sometimes when we give in to temptations, and, and we experience the sweetness of victory when we overcome it. And we are, after all, really soldiers uh, in this war that we're in. We're not mere pawns in it. We're soldiers in a cosmic battle. And that's just the point. It really is a cosmic war. It, It may seem to us to be so very personal because it is very personal. Each one of us, in a real sense, is in the fight of our life, for our life, but at least spiritually speaking, and the lives of others. And when it comes to the lives of others, that even includes their eternal destiny. But it is larger than just the things that is happening to you and to me. You know, I imagine, and, and, and I really do have to imagine it because I've never been there, but, uh, but I imagine that if you and I were fighting in some battle in the service of our nation, there would be times when just about all I could see would be that which was right in front of me at that moment. But then there would be times when, when I'd be aware that you were fighting right beside me, and there would be times even when you might come to my aid or I might come to your aid. But there would also be times when we realize that this particular battle that we're fighting in is really part of a larger world, a war. We may not understand everything that's happening, but we fight these battles that we fight knowing that what we do really does matter beyond our own particular battlefield. And spiritual warfare is like that. Sometimes we experience it, and it seems as though it's all this, uh, this personal, all-out uh, spiritual attack. And sometimes we realize that we really are fighting side-by-side side with other believers. And sometimes we see another person is struggling with something, and, and we come to their aid. We come to their aid by praying for them or encouraging them through the hard time. And sometimes it's we who are helped that way. And sometimes we realize, we know that this is all part of a larger war. You know, in our world, when nations go to war and people go out to fight, some are simply sent out there by those that are above them. 
And they fight because they just don't have any choice in the matter. They don't understand why they're there to start with. And all the time they're simply wishing that it was all over. But others, like those in our volunteer army here in this country, well, they go out to battle. And while they may wish that it were all over, also they know what they're fighting for. They, they have some idea of what is at stake. And even... They know something of the larger picture of what that looks like. And they're in full and willing participants in that battle. And so God sends us out into battle. And we're not merely pawns. He sends out his people, his children. And and he gives us some idea of what's at stake, some idea of what's going on. And he's given us some scope of the nature of this war. And that portion of the scripture that we're going to look at today shows us kind of in sweeping visions and in really broad brush strokes the spiritual war as it is. It has has unfolded in the past and as it's unfolding right now around us and even as it will unfold in the days to come. The passage that we're going to look look at is a very difficult passage, yet it's one of the central parts of the book that we've been studying. And we're going to have to go over uh, some of it quickly. And for some of you, we're going to go over it painfully quickly because you're, you're going to say, I want to know more about that. Uh, but I think this is really the best way that we can present this text at this time. So I want you to join me, please, if you would, once again in the final book of the Bible, the last book, the book of Revelation, where we're going to look at uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 kind of form a central portion of the book, and we're going to look at chapter 12 now. So it, Revelation, as we know so very well by now, is really a book full of symbolism. And, and as we've made our way through this book, we've been able to understand some things pretty clearly, I think, while other things still remain a mystery. And, and we've tried to use the wisdom that God has given us to apply those things that we can know uh, from this book to our own lives. And we trust him with those things that we don't yet understand. We, we really do believe that, that, um, that when the time comes, those who need to know it will understand some of those things that we still find opaque. And although this book really deals with end-time events, it has application beyond those events. It can make a difference in our lives today. And I hope that maybe in some way in your lives, as we've been making our way through this book, that you haven't maybe just understood something more about what it means, but somehow you've been able to take some of that and apply it to your own life. And the church has found encouragement and nourishment in this book uh, down through the ages in a general sense but also and especially when they face times of tribulation chapter 12 is kind of an insider's look at our great enemy satan we're shown in some detail what he's like and what he has been up to and and what this does it, it gives us a glimpse of kind of three different times in his existence. It shows us, again, it's symbolic and it's in broad foam, but it shows us part of what he attempted to do in the past. And then it shows us, briefly, it shows us what he's doing right now. And it will show us what he is going to do at some point in the future and how near or how far that 
point is we simply don't know but we do know that that time is coming now once we've looked at these three different times in the life of Satan I am going to try to put that in a larger context of his existence kind of like draw a timeline of Satan and his existence so now we're going to turn to the text and in verses 1 through 6 they really talk a part about a part of his past and specifically he talks about his dealings with the nation of Israel so Israel is represented here as a woman who is about to give birth and Satan is pictured as a dragon now I'm going to read this entire passage verses 1 through 6 and then I'm going to kind of go back and take it apart uh, at least briefly and quickly okay so let's read it beginning in uh, verse 1 a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth and then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head and its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born and she gave birth to a son a a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And so what we have here in, in really broad form, what we see is that Satan is opposed to Israel and has tried to prevent the coming of the Messiah. But the Messiah comes anyway and ends up in heaven with God on his throne. And then Israel as a nation ends up in the wilderness. But with this one uh, thing, this one piece of information added to that, that God is going to take care of her. And, and, And so I want you to think about this for just a moment. There has never been another nation on the face of the earth where all of the people, where the nation was ended and all of the people have been scattered to the four winds of the world that has been reformed and become a nation again. And Israel did it not once, but twice. And so God is watching over them. They may be in the desert, but God is watching over them. Now what I just talked about is a broad view of of what Satan has done in the past. It's a picture of what he attempted to do to, to oppose Israel and in order to keep the Messiah from coming or to delay it at the very least. And I'm going to look a little more closely at the text now. So in verse 5, uh, we see that there's this male child is born to rule uh, the nations with an iron scepter. And that really is. That's clearly the Messiah. That's clearly talking about Jesus there. Uh, there's no real doubt about that in any commentaries, at least commentaries that take the Bible seriously as the word of God. Jesus is that Messiah. But what, you know what catches us off guard? It's that very next sentence where it says, the child was snatched up to God and his throne. And there's nothing there that's mentioned about his life or his death or his burial or his resurrection. 
But we know all of that happened. We know that it occurred. And, 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 and the symbol here simply goes from his birth to his ascension. I'll have more to say about it a little bit later. But the point is, the reason that this is done, is that, that John, through that vision, or God through that vision to John, it is simply making the point that Satan was not able to accomplish what he wanted. He has always opposed, he has always oppressed Israel to deter the coming of the Messiah. But Jesus came anyway, and Satan could do nothing to stop it. And now that Messiah, Jesus, is ruling with the Father in heaven. Satan is still opposed to Israel, and even though Israel is in a spiritual desert now, God continues to care for him. He's not done with that nation yet. He intends to save it. And last week when we looked at chapter 11, we saw just a little picture of what God intends to do in that life of the nation of Israel. Now there's a couple more comments that I want to do make about this passage and then we're going to move on. Uh, one of them is that Satan here is pictured with seven heads, and ten horns, and seven crowns and and there's really been a lot of speculation about all of that what all of that means and I have to tell you that later on in Revelation we're given a little bit more information and when we get to that part we're going to look at that a little bit more closely but I have to tell you that even when we have that that a lot of what we say will be simply speculation the point of this passage here what 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 the the Bible is trying to communicate to us in this picture is that we have this powerful and absolutely hideous enemy and that that enemy, Satan, has always been opposed to God's work. And and, and that's that picture that's being drawn for us here. Now that third of the stars that are swept out of the sky by his tail, some people think, well, that's the disaster that comes because of Satan and other people think it's, it's the angels that he led astray. That's what I think it means there because stars are often representative of angels. But, uh, but in any case, this hideous monster is opposed to God in his work. Now, Another thing to notice here, sometimes in some churches, Mary, Jesus' mother, is pictured as standing on the moon and the sun around her. We're wearing a crown of 12 stars, right? And that really is an interpretation. But there is nothing else here in the text that fits that. In fact, I really believe that this woman is pictured because she's a sign of the nation of Israel. And she's pictured the way she is, as standing on the moon and clothed with the sun and this crown with seven stars on her head to, to, to distinguish very clearly from that person, Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. I mean, Mary certainly never had a crown, did she? And there's nowhere that we know of that she went into the desert to be protected for three and a half years. And the truth is, Jesus wasn't threatened at his birth. He was celebrated at his birth by the angels, and people were told about it. Herod's attempt on the life of Jesus didn't occur until he was two years old. And then he wasn't snatched up to heaven. He was taken to Egypt for protection, and then he came back from there. This isn't a picture of Mary. It's a picture of the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah came. 
And, and this same woman appears later in the tribulation. And so we know he can't be talking about Mary. And Israel, in some Old Testament passages, is, is pictured as giving birth to the Savior. So in these first uh, verses that we've looked at, uh, we're shown that Satan attempted uh, to do in the past. He, he, he opposed Israel, and he tried to prevent the coming of the Messiah. That's his history, at least a portion of it. Now in verse 7, we're told something different. We're told about what is happening now. And what's happening now is that there's a war going on in heaven. And so this is what we read in verse 7. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Now I want you to know that word then, or if it's in your uh, translation translated and, means then or and after the resurrection and the ascension. War broke out in heaven. That's what's going on there now. That's what Satan is doing today. And, and of course, in some way, in some way, some way that we're not aware of, that battle involves you and I. But Satan is raging war in heaven now. Now I have to tell you, when you read verses 8 and 9, you might think that the battle in heaven is already over and that Michael and his angels have already won. And I, I want to show you why some people think that, and I want to show you why I think it's still going on. So we're going to read verses 8 and 9. But he, that is Satan, was not strong enough, and his battle's going on, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Now John is using the past tense here. And that makes you think that that battle is already over, that the fat lady has even sung. It's done, right? Uh, but, but the point of view that John is talking from is from the future. He, he's looking at it from the future, and he's looking back. And we see that in verse 12. Listen to what it says here in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. The reason they're rejoicing is because Satan has been cast out of heaven. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. You see, Satan knows his time is short, and what unfolds next after he's cast out of heaven uh, is, is all of these things that happened during the tribulation, including the coming of the Antichrist. So verses 8 and 9, I don't think, have happened yet. And when they do, we're going to find ourselves in the midst of the tribulation. The text is showing us what is happening today. And so today, Michael, uh, the archangel, is fighting against Satan and his, uh, and his angels. And that battle involves us, maybe in ways we don't really understand exactly how, but we are affected by it. But more importantly, we affect that battle. Paul tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. And 
battle that's going on affects us, but we in some way affect it by the way we live and by our prayers, coming to church, by worshiping God, by all of those things. Somehow we have a part in that battle. Now, I think that, that maybe that in some ways it, this idea of this war in heaven might seem strange to you. And I think that you might think that for two different reasons. Uh, and first, it, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, hasn't there always been war in heaven between the good angels and the bad angels? And the answer to that is no, apparently there hasn't. You know, Satan has had access to heaven. We know that. If, you're, if you know your Old Testament, you know that he would present himself regularly before God. And that while he was there one time, he got God to agree to allow Satan to attack Job. And, and he is the accuser of the faithful. That means he's accusing you and I. And we're going to see the text tells us he does that day and night. But after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus, that all changed. That's when the war broke out. At least that's what the text says. Up until that point you could think of it kind of as a cold war. Now the second idea, uh, the reason you might find that change, is you just find the whole idea of angels fighting demons uh, to be kind of outlandish. And if you think that way, and my question to you is why? <laughs> why do you find that so weird, so different? I mean, is it any more unreasonable that angels should be fighting than we should be involved in a spiritual battle? You see, what God has done here is he's given us a glimpse of the nature of this war that we're in and really is bigger than we are. And it involves all of creation. But what we do here, as in all wars, it matters there and it matters everywhere. Finally, when we come to verses 13 to 17 it shows us what's going to take place in the future Satan is no longer able to wage war in heaven uh, he's been cast out so he turns his full attention to the earth and when he's cast out of heaven that's when the tribulation begins or at least it's associated with that and, and he attacks and his attack is too pronged um, first thing that he does he attacks the nation of Israel so verse 13 we read when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And we're talking again, not of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was with the Lord, but the nation of Israel. And, and Satan attacks her. But God keeps her safe through these attacks. So, so we read in verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. That's a three-and-a-half-year period. Uh, we've seen that before. And that's the time of the tribulation that she's going to be taken care of. So Satan tries to reach her, uh, if we can put it this way, from a, from a distance, but, but he keeps her safe through the attacks, verse 15 and 16. Um, then from his mouth the serpents feed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon spewed out of its mouth. See, see, that's just a picture. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like when it happens. But we have this understanding that Satan's trying to attack Israel. God protects her. He tries to attack her from afar, and God continues to protect her. Because, see, God is not done with the nation of Israel yet. And so Satan cannot 
destroy it. And part of what will be happening during the tribulation is this attack on Israel. And probably from everything we know, it's a kind of amassing of people against people and nations against the nation of Israel. And it's not hard. It shouldn't be hard for us to imagine that. Because I think we see it going around us, going around us all already all the time. The second uh, thing that Satan does, the Satan, second prong of his attack is that he have, attacks the followers of Christ. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offsprings, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Uh, you know, we are the spiritual heirs of the nation of Israel. Jesus came through that nation and we are his children and we are the spiritual heirs. And so Satan wages war against the believers. He, he's always fought against this. But now we're looking at this tribulation period and, and, and uh, his whole attention is focused on attacking the believers. And the next thing in the scenario, the next thing that comes in this book is the Antichrist. So in this chapter, as we've looked at it so far, in a broad form, we've seen three different times in the existence. It shows us symbolically, again, a part of his existence when he attempted to keep the Messiah coming, opposing Israel. And then it shows us what he's doing, I think, now. And it's this war in heaven and this battle that's raging that we have some part in as we live our Christian life. And then it shows us what he's going to be doing at a point in the future. And maybe it would be helpful. It made me a little clearer if I kind of did sketch out a little bit of a timeline of Satan's existence. And he began at the creation. He's not an eternal being. He hasn't always existed. He was created by God. And he was created, we know, sometime between day one and day six. Everything that has been made in this world, and that's everything but God himself, was created in those six days. Probably created on day four, because that's the day God put the sun and the moon and the stars in heaven. And I'm not saying that stars are angels, but they often represent angels in the scriptures. And probably, likely, that's the day that the angels are created. And that's the day that Satan was created. And he was created a perfect being. He was a, a great angel, an archangel. But sometime, at some point, Satan fell. Sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Maybe it was on the seventh day when God rested. We don't know. It could have been any time after that before he led Eve astray. We don't know really how long from the, the creation until the fall that Adam and Eve had to enjoy the garden. doesn't look like it was very long, but, but Satan fell, and then he tempted our first parents, and they gave in, and our world was plunged into sin and darkness. But Satan, during that time, continued to have access to heaven. Remember, he, he was there to, to talk about Job with God. And he is the accuser of the brethren. Again, it says in the text here in Romans, uh, I mean, Revelation 12.10, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That's what Satan has been doing. And so Satan then 
when Israel was a nation, attacked it and oppressed it to try to keep uh, the Messiah from coming. That took a variety of forms. One of the most interesting was Balaam, who Balak brought to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. So Balaam said, get the Israelites to sin, and God will do the work for you. And that's exactly what happened. And then Jesus came, and he lived this perfect, sinless life. And Satan attacked him. And he was put to death. And so Satan bruised his heel. And he was buried. But then he rose from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. And that's when the war started between Satan and the angels and all out world. Now Satan is going to be cast out. And when that happens, it's going to be the tribulation period. And then at the end of that tribulation, for 1,000 years, he will be bound for the millennium. And at that end, he'll be set free to tempt the nations one more time. And then he will be utterly and completely defeated. He will be taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And what we looked at here in this passage was simply just a segment of that timeline. His opposition to Israel, the war in heaven, and the tribulation. That's the enemy that we fight against. Now, I don't know about you, but one might wonder why believers aren't accorded the same kind of protection that Israel has. And I have to tell you, I think it's due to the battle plan. And it has to do with the fact that we are ready for it face eternity. Israel is not yet ready for that. Now I'm going to go back and read uh, verse 10 and 11 in this chapter. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and of his, uh, the authority of his Messiah for the, uh, Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, if you know Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of his, you might be scared to death of it, but you are ready to die. And Israel at this point is not. In World War II, there was a ship that had about 12 salvation workers on it, from a salvation army of workers on that ship. And it was torpedoed. And it turned out there were not enough life vests for everyone on the ship. And so the crew was not given any life vests. And the salvation army workers, one after another, took theirs off and handed it to a crew member. And every one of them said the same thing. I don't need this. I'm ready to die. You're not. Take it. Every one of those Salvation Army workers died. And everyone that took a vest lived. You and I, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we've gone to war whether we know it or not. 
and we're under the command of our Savior. We don't know what it's going to be like when and if the day comes. We don't know how we'll fare. We don't know how we'll act. But when we've marched out, willing to lay down our lives, trusting Jesus as we go, and if we face that day, we're going to trust him then to give us the courage, whether, so that, as Paul said, whether by life or by death, Christ will be honored in our body. And what we do here, whether by life or by death, matters. It matters for all eternity. It matters for the nation of Israel. And it matters for everybody else. The games have ended. The war has started. Would you pray with me, please? Father, help us to walk with you each and every day. And we would be prepared. That we would indeed put on the full armor of God so that we would stand and when we have done everything that we would stand to your glory in Jesus name Amen